Well, we've now reached probably the most famous passage of all anywhere in the Bible. I'm talking about John 3.16 and to the remainder of that paragraph. Let me read that to you. I'm sure the words will be very familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he's done has been done through God. Well, John 3.16 is without doubt one of those passages which so is so well known that it trips off the tongue so so readily. It's the kind of thing which we have become immune to simply because of the fact that we know it so well. And as a consequence, it's very hard to actually think about the passage and what it means without all the baggage that comes with it, without all of the, the, um, the ideas which have, have come before, and to try to see it afresh. But let's try and do that. Let's say what we've got now. I think the most important part of that verse is this. It says, For God so loved the world. And this idea of God loving the world has exercised a number of people, firstly because there are two main views on that that I recall. The first is that some people like to say that, well, God loved just the people who he loved, a bit like he loved Israel and he didn't love the Gentiles, or he loved Christians and he didn't love the rest of the world. He loved the elect, but he didn't love the people who were not elect. And you can see the, the interesting uh, advantage of that, because if you can say that God loved everyone, then why isn't everyone included in salvation? And if he only loved some, well, we can then say, well, he loved those who were part of the elect. But I don't go along with that view. I have to say that my view is that God, when it says God so loved the world, it's something about the statement of the character of the nature of God, who stands in position to the world in such that he has a, a view of the world which stems from his own nature and his own nature is one of love and compassion and mercy. I know there are passages which deal with God as judge but from this perspective here, from the perspective of what Jesus Christ represents to us of the character of God, it's preeminently this fact that there is a feeling from God to those creatures which he's created which is benevolent, 
which is kindly disposed, which looks down maybe with compassion and with mercy at maybe a world that's gone tragically and badly wrong, a world which is full of hatefulness and evil, wickedness, a world which contains things like the Holocaust, which contains so many uh, deaths and and suffering of illnesses and diseases, that I think that one cannot but view the state of the world with something like compassion and with kindness and with love and concern for those suffering which is just endemic everywhere. And I think that that shows more clearly the character of God than anything else. For God so loved the world that he did something about it. And the thing which he says to have done here is the thing which is to give the greatest gift that he has, which is the gift of his own son. One thinks of the son within the family, particularly the firstborn son, the only begotten son, the son which is connected to you genetically and by upbringing too, that that is maybe the most precious um, person within the family. Most parents would, if forced to choose, give up their own lives and give up the lives of their children. They'd rather, you know, put their children first. So this is a very deep connection that we're talking about here. And God so loved the world, he says, that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes on him shall have shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, this is a clear connection to the previous verse, and you can't properly understand the meaning of that verse without really linking it back to what was said. Let me just take you back to verses 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. Now, to remind you what I mentioned before, we're going back to Numbers chapter 21. And here the people were rather rebellious, recalcitrant, a bit uh, stubborn, They'd been looked after by Moses, the prophet of God. And yet here you find that they're grumbling constantly. Well, um, as a consequence of that, it says that God sent many snakes into the area. So the place was full of snakes and whoever got bitten by the snake died. I mean, these were very venomous, poisonous snakes. So this is the kind of situation they were in. They therefore come to Moses and say, can you save us from the snakes? And Moses, um, from a word of God, makes this brass image of a snake, puts it up on a pole, and then says to anyone, anyone who is bitten by a snake, come, look at the pole, look at the snake. And the simple act of looking will be enough to save you from the consequences of the snake bite. Well, that seems uh, remarkable. It seems like it's an unbelievable kind of um, system. Uh, it's not 
therapeutic in the normal sense of the word. We're not given an anti-serum here from the venom of the snake. We're simply told to go and look at something. And this, beyond anything else, indicates the nature of faith. And I pointed out last time that faith is something which inevitably is linked to, to action. You, you have faith, you have action, and they are indissolubly linked together. And you cannot have faith or claim to have faith without action. So if you're suddenly bitten by the snake and you're told that the cure for that is to go over find your way to this pole, go and look at it and you'll be saved. If you didn't believe that, you would, wouldn't would do it. It's a nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. How can this be? As Nicodemus would have said, how can this be? And yet, faith which you trust that to be true, you act upon it. Faith is the precursor to all action. And so you decide that you'll go, because you believe, you'll go and do the crazy act, which doesn't make any sense. And yet those people who were motivated by faith, who looked upon the snake, they were cured and they were saved. They did not perish. Now, that's the picture that we must hold in our minds when Jesus said, in the same way that the snake was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Now, in other words, made prominent, publicly displayed, in some way or form. The most obvious allusion here is to the crucifixion, where being nailed to a cross, it's raised up publicly and people come and gaze at the malefactor, the person who carries sin and is being killed for their acts. So this is something which is in Jesus's mind already. And he says that in the same way that the snake was lifted up, so I will be lifted up. In the same way that merely looking upon the snake, which causes you to go and act in a certain way, so believing in me causes you to act in a certain way, and that will be uh, your salvation. So trusting in me, trusting in my words, trusting in what I say and do, and particularly trusting in my being lifted up in this kind of way, that will be the very fulcrum, the very point of your salvation. Now, all of that has to be held in contrast to what the Pharisees were saying. They stood in opposition to Jesus, and they were the ones who, like Nicodemus, had taught the people for generations about the ways of God, about keeping the law of God, about the way of being saved. Keep the law of God and you'll be in God's good books and you'll be fine. Jesus contradicts that view and says that in contradistinction, if you do not believe what I say, you'll be condemned already. Listen to the, the words here. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not stand condemned, uh, believe stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. 
So there's a big contrast, massive contrast here. The Pharisees, people like Nicodemus themselves, said that by keeping the law of God, you would be in God's good books and you would be saved. The fact of the matter is that the law did no such thing. It merely condemned people because no one was able to maintain a righteousness before the law. Whatever the law was saying, it merely told you that you were condemned. It's like any ideal in the world. If you have an ideal for which you live up to, the very nature of human beings is such that we never live up to those ideals. We always fail. And so whenever we look at ourselves as compared to what the law requires us to do, we always find that there are errors, mistakes, failings, missing the mark, sinfulness, as the Bible calls it. And therefore, the, the fundamental nature of human beings is one of fragility, failure, imperfection, never getting things completely right. So holding yourself up against that standard is one which leads you to being condemned. You condemn yourself when you look at the state of the law and you realise you're not up to scratch. That is the understanding of anyone who gives an honest assessment of themselves, their own character and their own behaviour with respect to their ideals. No one lives up to that. And so you stand condemned. But, says Jesus, on the contrary, whoever believes in me, uh, the Son of Man, will... Does, um, will um, sorry, let me get the words right. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, rather as the, the law condemns the world, but to save the world through him. So there's a huge, huge contrast. The law condemns, the son of man saves, and saves in the sense that they will not perish, which is the same kind of word that was used in the Old Testament with the snakes. Perishing means dying. Perishing means um, being uh, death. There are some people who might think that that means eternal death, maybe in hell or whatever that might be. So there are some which may simply mean that to be um, death and the end of existence. I don't want to make any comments upon those things. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day from the point of view of what this verse is saying. But it's saying that if you put your look to Jesus Christ, listen to what he has to say, put your life in order according to his teaching, then you won't perish. That's the idea that's being presented here. Because God loved the world, he sent this person in order to direct our attention to the right way to live and what to do. But if you don't, then you stand condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And that's interesting. Standing condemned already means a past event, something which has already taken place. And that's because it seems to me that all you've got then as a way of, of saving yourself from this condemnation is the law itself. And that's condemned you already. So... You know, no one is going to stand up when faced with the law. The only way, says Jesus, is I present a real and true alternative to that. So this is the verdict. 
light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now, this is an interesting twist here. This is really a change, a change of, of, of character or, or nature. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Of course, it's an echo of uh, what was said in John chapter 1 because he says that um, uh, there came a man uh, named was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man in the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was not his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now this is just the same kind of words as in chapter 3, just slightly different uh, tone to it. And he says that um, you, you know, the world did not accept or did not accept that the, the light or the inspiration that Jesus Christ, Christ gave. So there is that echo, but there's, there's something else going on here, I think, when he says, this is the verdict. This is the judgment. This is, this is the, the overall um, conclusion that we come to from what he's just said, that, you know, you make your choice between believing in Jesus Christ and putting him at the centre and, and his teaching as to what guides you in your life, or you put the law of God and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those kind of people at the centre and you allow them to guide you as to what you do in life. Now, you can make your choice, says Jesus, it's one or the other. But the enormity then, but the enormity of setting himself up as an equivalent of the entire tradition of the law, which was represented by the Pharisees, is a monumental claim. It's, it's unbelievably, either it's unbelievably arrogant to say that what I say is the equivalent of the law and even better than the law, and you have to choose between the two of us. Or it's um, foolishness, or it's, it's uh, something which would cause huge offence I probably would have done by Nicodemus, who came to Jesus, as we know, at night. And there's, there's this idea here, it seems to me, which is, which is crucial, that the setting of where we're at, this is, remember, the second half of Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him at night time. It came to him in the darkness because he didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus. There's no fully committed um, guy here in terms of Nicodemus. This is someone who is hiding in the shade, not wanting to be seen by his fellow Pharisees, not wanting to be abraded by them, not wanting to be seen to be really in Jesus' camp. Someone who's just dallying with the idea of meeting with Jesus and trying to ask questions. But someone who's not prepared to nail his colours to the mast because he's there in secret, hiding, nighttime, shifty, uncertain. What does Jesus say? Suddenly he turns upon Nicodemus and at the end of this talk here he says, this is the verdict. 
And I think it's a verdict on Nicodemus's behaviour and his half-heartedness in his approach to Jesus. I might be wrong in that, but that's how I see it here. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And here is the idea that hypocrisy, the idea that not being fully committed to something, not being open, not being honest, not being transparent, not being the kind of person who is willing to stand by what they say, but, but shifts around at night time. That's a form of evil. It's a form of wickedness. It's a form which uh, has this hypocrisy label attached to it. Fear, lack of courage, lack of the ability to stand for what you believe. This is a hallmark of Nicodemus coming at this time. Why else would you come at night time? because he's afraid and doesn't want to be seen in the company of Jesus. So this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, Jesus himself, but men love darkness instead of light. And there's darkness all around us here. Don't forget at this particular point, they're standing in darkness. Think of that. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That's an indictment, it seems to me, of this whole scene with, with Nicodemus presenting himself to Jesus in this half-hearted, surreptitious, shifty kind of I'm-not-prepared-to-be-seen-with-you kind of way. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So here you have... Here you have Nicodemus, who doesn't want his deeds exposed. He doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. He comes at night. And whoever lives by the truth, though, says Jesus, comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. In other words, stand up straight, Nicodemus. Don't be bowed and cowed by the pressures of the world and by what other people think of you. Be someone who is prepared to move in the light, to say what you think, to be the person that you're meant to be, to be a teacher of Israel, to be someone the people can look up to. Don't go skulking around in the darkness here, half-heartedly thinking that you might entice me with your pleasant words of saying that I'm a teacher. I'm not deceived by any of that. And neither should you be, because until you learn to have a voice of your own, a voice which is prepared to be outspoken, transparent, and willing to say what you really think and believe, until you can get to that point, you will be no teacher. And you will be someone who will always just skulk around in the darkness. Stand up for what you believe in. And those people who stand up for me, says Jesus. Those people who um, accept me as the Son of God and follow my teaching, those people will be rewarded and those people will not perish. <laughs>